Hello and welcome to another episode of God's Own Scale podcast, where the smaller it is, the bigger the bang. I'm Sean Clark, your host. This show is sponsored by Coat Arms Paints. Please check out their website in the show notes. Today I'm talking to popular YouTuber, blogger and hobbyist Lee Hadley, aka Big Lee from the Miniature Adventures YouTube channel. It's always good to reach out and speak to other content creators, and Lee was no exception. In hobby news, well, the joy of six is back, in person, face-to-face, in the physical world, where we will be able to not only see, but feel and smell all that is good in the six-mil hobby. It's back at the Sheffield Hallam University, and promises to be bigger and better than ever. I know that there are plans for people from across the globe to make the show, which just demonstrates how well it is regarded within the community. And Peter has some great plans in the offing. Personally, I've got something rather special planned too, but that is taking place during the workshop tours that Peter conducts around Bacchus Towers on the Saturday before the show. More of that another time, but we are all in for a treat come July. New releases that have caught my eye include some beautiful Renegade Militia Infantry from Vanguard, which will be perfect for your 6mm sci-fi needs and especially good for Epic 40k. I may be talking Epic 40k in a future episode, so keep an eye out for that one. And staying on the fantasy sci-fi theme, Rapier have released some wonderful 6mm trolls for their Glorantha range. And any fans of the role-playing game RuneQuest out there will love these, and of course they'll fit in with just about any fancy system you care to mention. One of the most often heard grumbles is that of of miniature manufacturers' websites without pictures of the models they are selling. Well, Scotia Grendel are rectifying this with more pictures up of their modern British offerings, including a lovely Challenger tank and a Chieftain as well. And, of course, Bacchus continue on their road to Manifest Destiny with the release of some lovely buildings for the Pony Wars range, including a charming little mission building. Okay, that's enough of me wittering on. You're not here to hear me talk. You're here to hear from Lee and all about his take on this wonderful hobby of ours. So, let's talk about six. Okay, welcome to episode 42 of God's Own Scale podcast, and the number 42. Now, that, that goes back into geek culture, uh, <laughs> back to my hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy days lee i don't know if you remember yep. all that stuff <laughs> uh the answer is 42 but what's the question well hopefully hopefully i'm going to have one or two questions for you today but uh that there ladies and gentlemen was my guest for the show you've seen his name in the show title but i've got mr lee Hadley with me hi lee how are you hi not too bad thank you very much for having me um been a, it's a great privilege. <laughs> well, it, I'll throw that right back at you, Lee. You're you're a you're a renowned YouTuber of some substance with a thousand subscribers now. 
Yeah, well, I was I was surprised by that because um, it, it's been a slow build, but I've been enjoying every minute of it, and I think I've made some new friends along the way as well. So, uh, and that's what I want. I want to have a conversation with people, um, particularly when I wasn't able to see people over the last uh, you know, eighteen months, two years. Um, that was the whole purpose of setting up the channel originally, was to keep me sane. But it's gone great guns in the last 12 months, hasn't it? I think over 800 new subscribers. Yeah, I mean, there's been a couple of steps, you know, when we've had a particular video that's done well, some of the battle reports and stuff. Um, uh, I mean, I still consider myself to be small fry. There's some amazing channels out there with huge subscriber numbers. But, you know, I suppose everyone's got to start somewhere. So I've been, I've, I've been enjoying it. At the end of the day, I'm doing it as much for my own entertainment as anything else. And if people like that as well, then that's great. Um, and as I say, if I make a few friends along the way, even better. Yeah, and uh, uh, you're really coming at it from the same place that I am with the podcast, really. Um, mm. You can only make content that you think you'd like to listen to or watch. Uh, and just hope that others out there enjoy that content. Um, mm-hmm. It's and there's a lot of content out there, isn't there, that you're competing against? Yeah, I mean, the, you can spend hours and go down all sorts of rabbit holes on on YouTube in particular. Um, and you know, uh, there's some amazing channels. I mean, I, I've found hundreds in. The, in the last two years, obviously, as I've been looking at people's comment, and then I go and have a look and see what they've done. Um, you know, there is some amazing stuff out there. And, you know, if you've got a question about rules or you just want to see something played, there's always someone who's put something on, on YouTube for it. So, um, you know, it's, the, the internet has its good and bad sides. Um, but I, I think that, on the whole, my experience of things like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook is a positive one because I'm only engaging with gamers. I'm not getting involved in anything else. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very easy to get drawn in sometimes, isn't it? I've I've fallen foul a couple of times where uh, I've I've followed a particular thread and it's ended going down a rabbit hole, and before you know it, you're in a world that you didn't know existed and had no intention of visiting well it's one of the reasons why i try to keep politics off of my blog in particular but also out of the videos it's not that i haven't got political views i do um and in the right company i can be quite vociferous about my views um but i try to keep it out of the blog because at the end of the day it's about gaming not about my politics um and you know if you want to go and have an argument with someone which is basically the default position for most people online these days um there's plenty of places you can go and have a barney um on my blog and on the, the YouTube channel, I just want to talk about gaming um, uh, and enjoy that positive aspect of it. And on the whole, very rarely get, I'm going to open the floodgates now, but I very rarely get trolled. Um, uh, and that's great because that's what, you know, I don't want to hear any of that. Um, uh, like I say, and people talk about Twitter being a, a horrible environment. It can be, but I suppose it depends who you follow. The people I follow on Twitter, it's a lovely place. Um, we have good conversations and everyone's friendly and the banter's good. And it's exactly the same as around, around the games table with, with my mates. So, um, yeah, the internet is, internet is what you make of it, I think, sometimes. Yeah, and particularly with Twitter, you, there's always the block option, isn't there? If, if somebody's saying something you don't like that appears on your, your feed, then it's very easy to just don't engage. Don't feed the troll, uh, block them, move on. Uh, right, so um, as is usual with any new guest uh, on the show, uh, I do like to dig into the, the background of uh, the guest to see what brought them into this hobby in the first place, because 
I guess certain people of a certain age, and I think we're roughly the same age, Lee, from judging from uh, what I've seen on, on the YouTubes, uh, we all tend to have, a, it's either Airfix Little Soldiers or, or Dungeons and Dragons uh, in the late <laughs> 70s, early 80s. Uh, that tends to be the common one. But uh, with this section, I'm just going to try something new, and you're my guinea pig. I have warned you about it, so uh, listeners don't think I'm throwing Lee under a bus for this one. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to do hobby firsts, I think. Um, so first, War Games figures. Aside from the the plastic airfix that you will throw marbles at, what would no. be yours? I, I I suspect, and I, I can't be sure because I've actually been trying racking my brains trying to remember. Um, so the first figures I probably did were mostly Games Workshop stuff, um, so Citadel, um, uh, and a lot of Raoul Parfa stuff, as I recall. Mainly because my background before I got into any form of war game, uh, any form of war gaming was role-playing games so that's where i cut my teeth painting and things like that so i had lots of Ralph parfa stuff and then um uh, and grenadier and various other um uh, manufacturers that did stuff specifically for role-playing gaming and then we as a group my me and my mates moved on and started playing uh warmer fantasy battle so i suspect that most of what i had but i do know most of what i had was citadel stuff plastics um uh, yeah, so uh, quite a variety of stuff in my collection back then, and sadly, most of it I still I don't have anymore. Because um, despite the fact that I don't play fantasy war game war games anymore, it, 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 I do kick myself when I think of that army that I gave away to a friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that that really echoes uh, with myself, Lee. I, I was the same as you. Uh, I, I started out with Dungeons and Dragons, uh, and then painting uh, the old pre-slaughter days. Uh, Citadel miniatures, and I can I can vividly remember the first time we picked up the original Warhammer Fantasy bottle, Battles in that white box, um, and we played on a, a friend's carpet. And I can't remember, but we must have had about a hundred miniatures of all sorts: crikey, orcs, hobgoblins, troglodytes, and uh, gnolls and dwarves and elves, and we just had and the most amazing time just playing across my mate's carpet um yeah. and i have no idea what happened to any of those figures yeah it, i mean I, I i keep thinking about some like the first things i ever painted um and they were for obviously for the for uh, role-playing games and and i haven't got any of those figures again and i don't remember ever getting rid of them so uh, they're probably in my parents house somewhere i'll probably go over there and find that they've kept them um which would be great if they have um but yeah, uh, I mean, as as a group of friends, me and my mates from school, we were all into role-playing games like you, know, D&D. That was our first sort of break away from traditional games. Um, but we all sort of, you know, the games got bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually we, we were effectively playing a skirmish war game, but with, ga- with role-playing rules. And then, of course, it was a simple, it was just one step more to, right, okay, let's get a, we end up getting the Warhammer Fantasy Battle. Um, played that for years. Um and, and again, like you, I remember crawling around on the floor. I couldn't do that now. My knees would just scream thinking about it. Um, and, uh, and 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 some of the things that we did as well to 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 put, make a game up. Um, I mean, nowadays everyone has a battle mat. We used carpet tiles, and they weighed a ton. Um, and I remember 
years after we'd started playing, we, we, we were all at university and we went down to my friend's uh, flat in Brighton to play a game. And, and the car was like on its axles because the weight of the carpet tiles in the boot, um, which we then laid out across this living room because all these mates had gone home for the, the holiday or something. So we had the house to ourselves and we laid this big game out on the floor, but it was all crawling around and all. I just can't mind. I'd say my knees scream just thinking about it. Um, don't know how much sort of damage I did to myself back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, for for a student, I think there's worse things you could have done to your body. Than <laughs> True. Around on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did some of that as well, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, first war games rules that you play. So let's. We've took. You've mentioned there about Warhammer Fantasy Battle. What about the first historical war games rules? Can you remember that? Mm. Um, so when I, I the first proper historical game that I played was actually with Posties Rejects. And when they ill-advisedly invited me to join them for a game, and then they found out they couldn't get rid of me. Um, so we played Fire and Fury, American Civil War, um, which I later on I did buy the set of rules. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a good game. I didn't really know what was going on because I'd not done not wargamed for years at that point. Um and as I say, they, uh, they, they couldn't get rid of me after that, kept coming back for more. Um, so, so did you have a, a break then? Because that, would, that wasn't that long ago, was it, when you joined, well, I say relatively speaking, wasn't that uh, long ago with the Posters yeah, Rejects? About, about 11 or 12 years ago, I think I started playing with the Rejects. And um, it wasn't so much I'd had a break, it was just sort of like we, were, we had been wargaming when we all were still at university. And then, of course, we all scattered in four directions as we all went off into the two jobs, and we got serious about career, as if as if that was going to make a difference in our lives. And um, uh, but we kept on role playing. So you know, we stopped war gaming, or we did less war gaming, and we ended up doing more role playing because it was just easier. Um, uh, uh, and so it wasn't that I wasn't gaming at all. I was, and I was painting away on my own at home. Um, uh, but it was sort of like I, 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 there was a coming point when I decided I wanted to take my hobby a bit more seriously, do more painting, and that was the impetus for me getting setting up the blog, was to sort of share what I was painting, and it was mostly fantasy figures and stuff like that, um, and that somehow strangely caught the attention of uh, uh, Ray and Fran from the from the Rejects, and they invited me along for a game, and as I say, they they haven't been able to get rid of me, so I just keep coming back for more. Yeah, like I suppose they need an easy easy target in the group show. Yeah. Well, we'll get on to generalship a bit later. <laughs> I think we, sh- we share some uh, some certain attributes in that regard. Uh, on, on the role playing games side, mm-hmm. this is just a little bit of an aside point. Mm-hmm. But, um, I find it fascinating that role playing has come so much back in vogue. It seemed to die out uh, late nineties into the two thousands. You rarely heard of anybody running RPGs, and it didn't seem to have an awful lot of presence on the internet in, in the early blogs that were out. But it really seems to have caught fire again. Well, there was still a bit of a—I don't know if it was stigmas, perhaps not quite the right word—but you know, a certain type of person played a role-playing game, um, and you know, as a as a group, it was easy for us all, my, me and my friends from school, some of whom I still play with now. Um, you know, it was an easy 
game to get into. But it was something that you didn't talk about in polite company. Um, and then, as I say, when we all f- finished with university and went and got proper jobs, um, and you know, we just like most people, you don't talk about it because you don't want to damage your career. Well, you know, several years later, when you realise that that wasn't going to happen anyway, um, you know, it came less less of a concern for me. Um, and yet, like you say, D and D in particular has come back into vogue, and um, you know, in fact, I, I I actually think it was a really good grounding for me to go on and develop my gaming career, if you like, and, and go on to become a proper war gamer. Because, let's say, when you're doing painting figures for a role-playing game, you're only a few figures away from a skirmish game, and then from there, you, you know, and you, our um, as gamers, we're not never the same. You know, we always change and. You know, the gamer I was then is not the gamer I am now. Um, and, you know, there's been an evolution in, in what I play. So, you know, obviously after playing Warhammer Fantasy Battle, we went on and played some sci-fi stuff, Epic 40,000, my first um, taste of 6 mil gaming, although I didn't realise it at the time. Um, uh, and we played all sorts of stuff, you know, not just role-playing games. I mean, we did different role-playing games. We did... Uh, yeah, Call of Cthulhu and um, various other stuff as well. Um, so it wasn't just fantasy. Um, and I still love that. I still play d and But now I play with the same group of friends, but we do it over Zoom. Uh, you know, thank Crunchy for the internet. I play D&D with Miguel, with my, my two daughters and my son-in-law. Um, so, you know, it's still a love of mine. It's just one aspect of me as a gamer. Um, the other side, perhaps the more dominant side now, is the historical wargaming. Because as a gamer, I grew up, I evolved, I changed what I was interested in. Um, and, you know, say one thing leads to another, and before you know it, you've gone to a show, you've been exposed to different types of games, and 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 you know, I, like I say, I ended up gravitating towards proper wargaming. Um, but what I needed was a group to play with to do it properly. And when I got invited into Postage Rejects, that was just perfect timing because I didn't, my existing group of friends, I'd say most of whom I went to school with, we were still role playing, but none of us, they weren't interested in going on to do wargaming. Um, we'd had, we'd done that, we'd flirted with that. They weren't really that bothered. It took a lot of time and commitment and effort on their part and they, they didn't want to do that, which was fair enough. Um, uh, but I needed a group, and I couldn't find a group that would that I could go and fit into. And then, like I say, fate put a hand in, and I got invited to join the rejects. Um, and uh, I haven't looked back since. Yeah, role playing is interesting, isn't it? There's that whole satanic panic thing in the eighties, um, and then really uh, to be a geek. Uh, throughout the late 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s. It wasn't a cool thing, was it? But geekery now seems to be the ultra-cool thing because you look at some of the YouTube videos out there that run uh, live uh, uh, actual play role-playing games like Critical Role and one or two others, and, and these people get millions of followers. And they're mainstream media now. Um, so, and I'm a huge role playing fan. We uh, we've we've got a group up here that uh, I play with on a regular basis, uh, various games. So I'm a huge fan of the RPGs. But you've you've just touched on the next subject then. So it sounds like this is your first and only club. Uh, Lee. I was going to ask you first war games club. 
Yeah, well, supposed to be rejects by the sound of it. They're not really a club as such. I mean, it's just a group of friends. We're not a formal club. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a at one point I think there was about ten people, and it was a case of you know uh, 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 Stuart, uh, uh, the eponymous postie, uh, would say, "I'm running a game. Uh, who can make this weekend?" And maybe four, five, six people could turn up, and and it was nice and loose like that, and it, and, and and that's how it's progressed since then. Um, but it's not a club as such. Um, uh, we have tried putting on some. We've done some demo games. We tend to do one demo game at a show each year. Um, but we're not really a club. Um, but that suits me and it suits us because we don't have to turn up every game. And it's not like we're going to turn up every week. We could, probably couldn't do that sort of commitment. Um, so the, the in joke is, is we are the rejects because no other club would have us. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it, it suits us and it works really well. And we get to play a large variety of games because everybody who's involved has their own interests and some people have their own collections and occasionally will host their own games. Most of the games are put on by Stuart. Um, but, you know, if I decide I want to run a game, um, whatever it is, what, what a tanker or uh, the men who would be kings, I can say, right, I want to invite these people. Can you make it? And I'll, you know, post he'll lend us his shed for the day and we'll, we'll run a game and maybe he'll get to play as well. So um, that way we all get, we get in a huge variety of games in. Um, although instantly it was a, com- a conversation we've been having recently about the fact that we'd like to play some games a bit more frequently so we can really get to grips with the rules because we might play a set of rules and then not play them again for another two years because we've done all these other periods because Post is a bit of a megalomaniac with his collection. Um, so, you know, we can literally, we could play a couple of years and never do the same period twice in that two-year period, um, which is just crazy. I didn't know there was that many wargaming periods out there until I, he showed me his collection and just my jaw hit the floor. Um, just a little bit jealous. Um, and I've been trying to emulate him <laughs> ever since I've joined. But um, it does it just means that we get to do a lot of a variety of stuff and it's always interesting. Um you know, and, and, and although Napoleonics isn't necessarily my greatest period and some of my worst defeats have occurred to playing Napoleonics, um, uh, you know, then the game after that might be a different period. Um, so, you know, and, and in all sorts of scales, he's got 6 mil to 28 mil. Um, so it's, it's always interesting and always varied, which is just brilliant. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point you, you make about um, you might play one set of rules and then not play it again for another year or two years. That's certainly my experience of uh, club life um, because everybody's got their own interests or they like that variety of periods. But um, you might only bring out a collection once a year and you think, mm. well, I put a lot of effort into painting these figures. I'd yeah. like to play with them more than once a year. But um, So you play at Postie's Shed, do you? Yeah, so I, I live north of the river, so I have to cross over to uh, Gravesend where, where he is. So I bring me uh, me passport and my elephant gun when I cross the bridge. Um, uh, he's a bit of a wild country. He's like going into the Wild West at Gravesend. Um, but yeah, no, he's got a massive shed. Uh, uh, very envious of the, this huge shed of his. Um, huge table. Um, I keep getting the size wrong, but it's something like 8 foot by 16 foot, so it's absolutely huge. Um so and you know I have we've played games in there with five people aside, um, and he'll he'll umpire, and so you can imagine it can be a bit chaotic. But we could 
easily have a game with only two players. You know, um, so it, it's, it's big enough to accommodate any size game. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I've got. I'm sitting in my my games room, my little operations room at home, uh, and my table is tiny. <laughs> um, but that's great for solo games. But if I want to play a proper big battle game, um, then I have to go down the shed. And in fact, yes, uh, Sunday we were playing uh, eighteen, twelve Napoleonics on a huge table, loads of figures, really good game. Thoroughly enjoyed ourselves, and let's hope we can get some more in-person games in this year, more than we did last year for sure. Yeah, it's been fantastic, hasn't it, to get back mm. into the swing of things with face-to-face gaming. Um, our, our club's been uh, reopened for probably a couple of months or so now, and uh, it's it's great to see the old faces and people throwing dice and then enjoying mm. themselves across across the table. Well, we managed um, to keep ourselves sort of playing games. We've been using Zoom a lot and right, um, yeah. and Discord occasionally. Um, to, to be able to play a few games during the lockdown periods when we couldn't get together. Um, you know, so I've run a, a, what, a tank game, Ray's run some Donnybrook games. Um, uh, I've taken part in a, 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 a sort of a play-by-email game, which one of the one of the group Richard has run. Um, uh, Seven Years' War game, all done via sending emails and orders out. That was brilliant. Um uh, I've played a, a, another game, uh, a Water Tanker, Second World War, um, using WhatsApp as our medium. Um, f- uh, not with the rejects, but with a, a different group of people. I got invited to join a group to, to play a game. We played that over about three or four months. And that was a fantastic game. Uh, and we'd get sent photographs of uh, our tank's eye view. And most of the time, we couldn't see anything, which was just brilliant because it was just complete guesswork. We had the map. We knew what the layout of the table was, but beyond that, it was just sort of like, right, this is blunder along here in the dark until we get shot at. Um, but it was a great way to experience what a tanker in a completely different way. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, thank Crunchy for the internet, because basically that's managed, men, we've been able to continue to get in some games in, uh, even though we weren't able to see face to face. And of course, as if you've seen me blog on my channel, I've been doing a lot of solo gaming. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't be able to do that if it wasn't for the fact that I had a little games room, which I only got set up and in place literally about, uh, three months before lockdown. Right. Um, uh, my eldest daughter moved out and I said, I'm having that room. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, finally after 30 odd years, I finally got a, a games room. It's, it's a bit pokey in here, but at least I've got a small table, so uh, Did you get a contract of no take backs? Yeah, yeah. So you're not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> the sofa, if you come back. <laughs> that, that's a good point about the internet because um, I think a lot of gamers uh, found ways around the limitations of of not being able to see each other face to face and took to the internet, whether whether it was on Zoom, WhatsApp, or or whatever method, and whether that was actually uh, playing games over the internet or just having paint and chat sessions or role playing. And I, I think it really uh, created this re- uh, diverse way that we can still enjoy this hobby with friends because uh, wargaming can be a solo thing, uh, pretty much a solo thing, can't it? Because you spend yeah. a lot of time painting in your room. And- well, we, we started doing, uh, as rejects, we started doing a weekly paint and chat session. And it was meant to be just while lockdown was on. And we're still doing it. And it's become a, a, week, a part of our weekly uh, 
ritual now. And again, it's no pressure. People drop in and can, might miss a few sessions and join another one. But it's a great way to motivate us to get some paint on some models because, um, you know, we, we all get a bit lethargic sometimes. Um, and we'll all sit there, shoot the breeze, talk rubbish, talk models, um, show each other what we're doing. Occasionally, unfortunately, politics does get into the conversation where we try and it's, it's always good to go into one of these things. Are you what I've been doing in particular? I like to chat to the guys about uh, a subject of interest that I'm thinking about doing a video on, and I get their views so that I've got some ideas. Um, you know, or we'll just bring up do what most gamers do and bring up some the nostalgia and talk about an old game that we played and and, and uh, bad mouth each other about how bad we were in that particular games. So, you know, uh, but yeah, the paint and chat sessions have been fantastic, and I, I can't see us stopping that because it's just so easy to do. Uh, join on Zoom and uh, you know hour and a half, two hours at the most, and just enjoy each other's company. And as I say, we're a diverse group. Normally, you wouldn't expect any of us to 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 be in the same room together but you know if we're talking gaming everything else yeah i mean we'll often be sort of inspiring each other talking about our particular projects and um you know what we've been reading um uh, and also it's a great pool of knowledge as well and you know i've got a question i'm not sure how to tackle something or uh, is a book you can recommend or something like that and, and between them they've got a vast amount of knowledge i mean i know you'd get that in a club as well but um you know it, we can sit in a paint and chat session and I go right I'm struggling with something here you got any suggestions and I'll get a load of ideas and, it, and I'll, I'll feel reinvigorated and go off and be able to uh, explore some of the things that they've suggested so um, yeah I mean if I'd say to your, your listeners if you don't already do a paint and chat session I can highly recommend it because it's just it's been brilliant it's been a revelation and something that we'll definitely keep doing you know long after coronavirus is a bad memory um so yeah, one of the positives to come out of the last couple of years. I think you've. I think we've got to grab every positive we can because it's been a pretty cruddy couple of years, hasn't it? Um, not just for the hobby, but obviously worldwide, and with you know thousands and thousands of deaths, and it's all been very miserable, and uh, it's very difficult to find any positives. But hobby-wise, those sort of things, I think, have kept the lights on in most for most war gamers um and uh from what i can see most most war games are going to continue in that way uh, well as i say because we're not a club and we're not meeting weekly and sometimes you might not be able to make the next game so it might be a couple months between meeting up just these on these weekly sessions it's just a great way of keeping in touch as well yes, and just yeah. shooting the breeze and like i say talking about the hobby um uh, and there's no there's no pressure, you know. If you can only make half an hour, you know. Sometimes I might say, "Oh, I've got to go early tonight." Um, no one minds. Um, so it's it's been a, a an affirming ex experience. Um, uh, none of us had ever heard of Zoom before this, um, but I, I expect it will be around for a while now. So your the last first I'm going to ask you about Lee is your first show. I actually had to have a good think about this because I, I couldn't remember and I was looking back through my photo albums earlier today to try and figure out which one came first. So um, my first show of any kind was actually a, a more of a role-playing convention called Dragon Meat. It still still goes strong now. Oh, I've, I've been to a few. Yeah. yeah, I've been to a few. I went a couple of years ago. I would have gone this year, but it, 
it clashed with another show that I, I was going to. Um, but I normally go, I go now with my girls, with, with, with my kids. Um, um, and, but about probably only a few months after that was the first salute that I went to. So the first wargaming show. Um, and I think it was in Olympia at the time. And I just remember being completely blown away because I'd not experienced a war games tables like that. I'd not seen that before. You know, obviously we'd all seen seen games going on in the local games workshop, but that's a different thing. This was huge, and I remember there was a the one that stood out for me. It, I think it was an American Civil War game, and it was. I, my memory, it's six mil, but it might have been ten mil. But it was just incredible. You know, ranks after ranks of of men crossing these fields, um, uh, just awe inspiring. Um, and and you know, and then you turn around and there was another table that was equally mind blowing, and and it was just a fantastic experience. And um, you know, and I know a lot of people we have mixed feelings let's say about salute and its current location but salute will always have a, a, a place in my heart because of that first experience you know that first proper show um it just made a it just showed me what the hobby could be um and i mean obviously i went to that particular show particularly with the intention of buying random figures to paint because at the time i wasn't wargaming because i didn't have a group at the time um so uh you know, I was just looking for things to go and paint, and I just thought, oh, this might be interesting, and uh, yeah, a revelation when I got there, and just saw what was available, and the standard out there, and just, and everyone was friendly, you know, I mean, this is the thing that is, that I've always enjoyed about shows, is the vast majority of people were more than willing to talk um, about their hobby, strangely enough, um, uh, and it was just such a good experience, um, uh, and I've enjoyed going to Salute ever since. And like I say, as I was saying to you a bit earlier, it, it, in its current venue, it is literally 15 minutes from my house, so very easy for me to get to. Yes, it's expensive, but I'll, it'll always have a, a, a soft spot in my heart because of that first experience, because it was just so good. It's it's the flagship show of the year, really, for the hobby, isn't it? It's the largest show. I, th I think it's the largest wargaming show in europe isn't it something like that it's it's yeah, the largest single the largest, show i think yeah, yeah certainly the largest one in the uk and um i think cost i always estimate it cost me about 60 or 70 quid before i've walked through the door with traveling and tickets and etc but it's a cost that a group of us tend to go down on the train or catch the train about six in the morning uh, we're usually back about half seven, eight o'clock at night, and we've had a bloody good day. I don't tend to treat it as a shopping trip. Um, I'll inevitably, inevitably will purchase bits and pieces whilst I'm there. But it's just for the whole atmosphere and seeing the some some of the vendors that you wouldn't normally see at shows and seeing some of these great games and just being involved in what is the single biggest day in the hobby for me. So... Uh, I'm a big fan of Salute, and uh, I, I missed the November one. It's a shame it's not happening in April, but I, I'll, I'll certainly do my best to get down there in 2023. Well, I, I hope it's going to bounce back, because November was a little disappointing. It was quiet. There was a lot of spaces. Uh, you know, Obviously, some clubs couldn't turn up for you know legitimate reasons, and some of the traders didn't come as well. Um, uh, it was quieter, but I had a thoroughly good day nonetheless. I went with a big shopping list, um, got most of what I wanted to buy, 
talked myself hoarse. Couldn't walk properly for days afterwards because my knees were killing me. But, you know, I love it. Um, you know, the pain's worth it. Uh, and I just hope that when it does come back in uh, 2023, that it's, it comes back bigger and better. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a lo- it's a long day for us, but uh, the crack that we have on the train going down and then, well, we're usually falling asleep on the train going home. So <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it's quite an exciting day for us because... Uh, it's not every day that we get to go on the underground or you know, <laughs> fight our way through the, the, the big metropolis. You know, yeah, we're, just, we're don't make don't make eye contact with anyone. That's just <laughs> the biggest rule. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> don't try and start conversation. You mean to the guy you're sitting <laughs> next to? Right. Okay. I mean, I, I I drive there now because let's say I'm I'm close and I can't be bothered with the underground, especially if I'm laden down with bags on the way home. And by the time the show ends, and I'm normally there to like like literally kicking us out the front door um and the last few years we've um ray somehow has managed to twist someone's arm and we've got press passes and been able to get in earlier um so it's an even longer day because we're there like an hour hour and a half before the show even opens um so by the time it gets to five o'clock i'm sort of like there is absolutely no way i could get the train home and i just fall into my car and like i say i'm home in 15 minutes and then uh, Sort of like the wife looks at me and says, you know, have you spent much? And I go, of course I have. <laughs> Hard day, dear. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> it was hell out there. <laughs> but no, I, I've always tried. Certainly, uh, I went to one at the original venue, Kensington Town Hall, uh, back in the day, and then went to several at Olympia. Um, which I, I thought the venue at Olympia was great. Um, and I've been to numerous ones at XL now, and uh, I'll always try and get down to it. It's uh, it's the, a big day in the year, isn't it, for any hobbyist? So. Yeah. I mean, the, the one advantage, though, of... I mean, it's a small advantage as far as I'm concerned, but the fact that Salute isn't going to happen this year has made us as a group think a bit further afield. So we are thinking about doing some shows that we've not done before. So we're we're talking about attending, uh, going up to Hammerhead uh, later in the year and, um, you know, uh, uh, or Partizan or or one of those sort of a little bit further afield that we wouldn't normally have done. Um, You know, they're doable in a day, even from here. It's a lot of driving, but I'm up for that. and as, as I was saying to you a bit earlier, I'm hoping to, to get to Joy of Six this year because I, I had a trip planned before uh, for 2020 and that all got kiboshed. So um, I'm hoping to try and do that this year. Um, uh, so it's just, it, you know, it, when when your regular shows can't go ahead, you just got a bit creative because it's that or do nothing, isn't it? So Yeah, um, and, uh, shows used to be a massive part of my hobby for me, to be honest. I would try, I would probably get to at least 12 or 13 shows a year. I think uh, some of the shows have died off now and uh, no longer happen. Some of the, the bigger shows that we stop up in the Midlands. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's certain shows that are on the calendar, like the Partisans, uh, which if, if you've never been to a Partisan, I highly recommend you get to it because mm. um, they, they do pride themselves on having the absolute top quality demonstration games you know top draw quali- uh, demonstration games and most of the major traders uh, are there uh, and the venue's great it's a huge airy uh, glass uh, fronted building that uh, is, is just fantastic for 
uh, a show location. But I know Peter's put out the uh, announcement for the Joy of Six this year. So if you can get up to that as well, that would be absolutely fantastic. And yeah. catch up and uh, and swap war stories, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice to put a face to a voice. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, well, not this one. <laughs> a face for a radio, as you say. That's why I don't do YouTube videos. <laughs> uh, right, well, thanks for that little bit of a, a peek behind the curtain of uh, your hobby life, Lee. Um, mm-hmm. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that slightly different take on the hobby uh biography uh we'll we'll see what reaction it gets i suppose uh right we'll move on to uh next uh area of discussion which is why you're here in the first place really (laughs) and why i know about you which is blogging and more recently youtubing so um how how did you first get into the blogging because that's been going for a while now isn't it the the um, yeah, I started in January 2009, so the blog's 13 years old, just turned 13. Um, I think what it was, was, uh, um, you know, like most people, I'd had sort of a period when job and career and kids had sort of not taken me away from the hobby entirely, but had sort of reduced what I was doing. Um, uh, my group at the time, my group of friends from school, we were still meeting up for for uh, role playing games and so on but i hadn't wargamed in a while um but what i wanted to do was focus more on the painting side and i basically you know i sort of joined up on facebook and was looking at stuff on there and then i sort of thought well hang on what's this blog thing i've never heard of this before um and i decided to start a blog specifically to show off my painting and improve my painting skills um uh, you know, I was never going to be a, a, a competition winner, but I wanted—I've always enjoyed painting and producing a good fig, figure, and I get a, a buzz out of finishing a model. Um, and, and so that was really what I start, why I originally started uh, me, me, my blog. Um, and and there was a lot initially. It was a lot of stuff to do with the games that I was playing at the time, which was mostly role-playing games. Um, uh, and then like I say these these two strange geezers from uh, Posties Rejects sort of said, "Oh, we'll meet meet you at Selwig." Um, and when I saw them there, they invited me along to a game, and you know uh, that got me back into wargaming. And so the blog has changed and evolved a bit over the time because ultimately I write what I want to write, um, and I've always enjoyed putting, I say enjoyed in a sort of sadomasochistic sort of way, writing because um, it is a painful process sometimes. Um, but that's that's basically why I set up the blog. It was for me own entertainment. Um, I'm just glad people have kept on coming back. Um, uh, I think I hit something like three million visitors to the blog last year. I mean, it has been around a while, so that's not entirely. Uh, it doesn't. It sounds better than it is. Um, <laughs> three million is three million. <laughs> <laughs> um, How long you been there? Yeah, but, I mean it. it, it I, about the same time as setting up the blog, I, I did set up my YouTube channel, and initially I was just posting bits of video from uh, like living history events and things that I went to, and I didn't really take it seriously. I didn't really understand what YouTube was, um, uh, and it was really it was the the the, the, the lockdown twenty twenty. You know, come to March and everything's shut and I can't go out at the weekend and do the normal things that we do. Because as a family, we really enjoyed visiting museums and 
just going out and doing stuff like that and, and, and historic locations and living history events. And, of course, all of that came to a screeching halt, along with everything else, quite understandably. But it suddenly meant that my weekends were empty. I couldn't do games, couldn't do any of the things that we normally do. And I just thought, well, I, I need to do something to fill in the time. Um, you know, not like I wasn't busy enough already because I've always got too many projects on the go. But I thought, well, I'm going to revive the YouTube channel and see what I can do. Um, and you know, I, I think I mentioned to you earlier that I got, I'd finally got a games room um, when my eldest daughter moved out, um, and uh, everyone had had a shuffle around, and I'd got the little room in the house, and I'd converted it and turned it into my games room. Finally, after like 30 years, I had a room and a space of my own, and it meant I could do videos, I could do YouTube videos, which you couldn't do in a living room with, with the TV on in the background. Um, uh, so lockdown comes along and I thought well I'm going to do some do some videos and start doing that and it's been an evolution a process that I've just learning how I go along and I've been thoroughly enjoying learning new skills how to edit software and uh, or edit edit videos and trying out different software packages and then trying out different audio packages and um, doing some online courses on filmmaking and stuff like that um, you know I don't by any means consider myself to be uh, a professional by any stretch of the imagination but I like to think I'm always trying to improve and when I do look at some of the videos I did back in the, the, the summer of 2020 I do cringe a little bit at the, the quality of them you know improve the sound quality and things like that um, and I'm, so while I'm enjoying it I'm going to keep on doing it um, and, and if people seem to be enjoying the videos I get a lot of a lot of comments and some really interesting conversations going on that's really what i enjoy doing and um you know i'm hoping that that's going to continue if i can keep on thinking of things to talk about of course um uh, so it's been it's been an enjoyable experience and you know okay now things are settled back to normal and we can go out at the weekend and i you know I'm, i've been working all the way through the the pandemic so you know i, I wasn't i was one of the unlucky ones i didn't get furloughed i had to work um there was time on my hands and that's how I filled it. And it's been thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we mentioned earlier, uh, you've recently hit a thousand subscribers, which is an incredible milestone. Well, it, it, it's small fry compared to some, <laughs> but I'm chuffed with it because yeah. it's, it, I mean, I was under 200 uh, uh, subscribers at the beginning of the year. Um, and I hit a thousand just after new year. So I'm pretty chuffed with that. Um, and, it's been an enjoyable experience all the way along because as more people have subscribed, you get people who are watching on a regular basis, and they all, you know, you get people who comment on a regular basis, and I try to always reply to comments if I can, um, and, and it's just been interesting. That I one of the, the types of videos that I do on a Sunday is a, like a short discussion point, um, something that's interested me or an idea that I thought, well, let's have a conversation about it. And I, I always try to end these videos by asking the, the listener, well, what do you think? You know, do you agree with me or do you think I'm completely crackers? And, or what's your experience? Because I want to start a conversation and, and I'm really enjoying that. And as, as I think I was saying to you earlier, I, you know, I've made a few friends along the way. Um, people that I hope that I'll eventually get to see face to face at a show maybe. Um, uh, but I, I while I'm enjoying the process, I'm going to keep on doing it. So, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That um, by particularly with the 
visual medium, the video medium, your face is very recognisable because um, you're front and centre of almost every video. Um, so I imagine once you hit uh, the shows in full stride, then you'll you'll barely get a quarter of the way around the uh, the venue uh, without being stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's good because you know someone will come up and say, "Oh, I'm such and such," and I've been watching. It. Oh, yeah, I know who you are, and and yeah. we have a quick chat, and it's just it's nice to like I was saying to you earlier. It's it's nice to put a face to to a voice or a set of comments, and um, um, it just widens that pool of friends and this wonderful hobby, which is you know this incredibly social, um, and friendly hobby of ours. Um, so you know it. it I, I do like the, the, the comments. So I can't say I can't. Uh, sometimes a co somebody will make a comment and I don't know what they're driving at. So I have to go off and have a long think before I do a reply. So I, what, were they, what were they trying to say? <laughs> but a lot of the time it's they're responding to the question that I send to pose at the end of the video, which is sort of like, you know, what do you think? You know, do you agree with me? I I'm, I'm, don't by any means think I've got all the answers. Um, uh, I try to pick a subject that I am intrigued by or I have some experience of or uh, just have, want to have a little think about. Um, and I keep the videos short. I deliberately try to keep them under 10 minutes. Not always successful, but I try to keep them under 10 minutes because they're meant to be just a little talking point for the week um, and see what comes up in the conversation afterwards. Yeah, I think I alluded to this in the, in the pre-chat that um, a lot of your content is... Almost what I'd say is uh, an editorial piece, if you like, where you're, you're commenting on an aspect of the hobby uh, that will generate discussion. So whether it's about recruiting people into the hobby or becoming a better general or uh, uh, gathering your group of mates around the table and accepting everybody and being inclusive. Mm -hmm. um, and it's certainly, we'll go on to this shortly, but uh, there's been one or two things that have just cropped up and we've messaged each other about this actually about that's really made me reevaluate my own hobby and that's what i think is interesting and this is your usp your unique selling point i think in that you do at the end of your video you throw that question out there to generate that discussion and it might not end up in a comment but the 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 viewer will go away and think wow what do i think about that and actually, that's a really good question and and, that, and that's certainly happened to me so uh more power to elbow with that Leo. i think that's a really great format but how, how on earth do you keep coming up with this fresh content that's that's the it's the million dollar question isn't it how how do you keep it fresh and how do you keep yourself interested when um, i find these when questions I, when i started doing it I, I sort of i sort of went back and raided 13 years worth of blogger posts on my blog to see if there was anything I'd written about um, and, and then I sort of took some of the big blogger articles and turned them into a video and things like that and when I quick pretty soon ran out of that material um, but you know I might I'll get ideas from all sorts of places um, so I'll, it might be an, a, a magazine article or an editorial or a comment piece in one of the magazines or, or it might be another YouTube video where I've seen somebody comment on something um, uh, or while I'm looking up something, I might come across an old blog post on somebody else's things. It gets me thinking about it. Um, so ideas come from all sorts of places. What I do tend to do is keep a, a, a note-taking app on my phone. Because uh, if I ever 
bright idea, it ain't going to last. So I quickly open the phone and record a, a, a couple of sentences into the phone, which can raise a few eyebrows in work occasionally. Um, but I can then come back to it later, you know, because I, I, I will, I've, more than one occasion, I've gone, oh, that was a really good idea, and I cannot remember what it was. <laughs> so I need to write it down. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, so I will, I will use an, a note-taking app on my phone so that I can keep keep those ideas and then I'll come back to it and sometimes I, I might have three or four things on the go where I'm having to think about them and I, you know I don't get inspired by that but I might come back to it later and and I, I always tend to write a, a short I say script that sort of grandizes it a little bit too much it's more like just a page of bullet points for me to so that I can remember what order I want to say things in um, and sometimes I will really struggle to, to, to put a piece together that makes some sense other times I might write three or four scripts in one setting and it's easy. Um, you know, it's just the way it is. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I will, I, like I say, I'll always have more than one thing on the go at any one time. And hopefully, so far, I've managed to not run out when it comes to my Sunday deadline because I try and put these out on a Sunday. Um, uh, it can be challenging sometimes to, <laughs> to think of new subjects. But, you know... You've only got to go on a forum or pick up a magazine and there's always a talking point, something to think about. And, you know, sometimes I might, like I say, I might respond to somebody else's video that would give me an idea and I'll take it in a different direction. Try and try and pose a question at the beginning of the piece, which then asks me to come up with what my thoughts on the subject. And they might not be right, you know, it's just what's leapt into my mind. Um, and that's the whole point of the conversation afterwards. When I say to the, the viewers, what do you think? Do you agree with me or not? It, it, it's like challenge me, you know, because I, I, I'm, I'm not some seer or guru here. I don't know more than other people. I'm just I'm just shooting the breeze and talking about my hobby like we all do. Um, and I want to start a conversation. So, um, very good yeah, fun. You, you never know when... Uh, this is a creative aspect to your hobby just as much as painting figures or or doing the research isn't it um and you never know when that muse is going to strike uh so, and sometimes it, it it can be like uh, writer's block sometimes can't it to think what the hell am i going to talk about this week or or when i'm sorting out the podcast uh and then other times you might have three ideas come within two minutes uh and you've got to jot them down but um so how long does it take you then to produce one of these 10 minute videos, these sort of editorial pieces that uh, have labeled them? How, what sort of effort are you putting into those? I'd probably spend, I mean, it's a bit hard to say because like I say, I'm working on when I'm writing the, the script, so to speak, this list of bullet points that I'm working from. Sometimes I can knock them out in 10 minutes and sometimes I might be struggling with them for days. Um, but once I've got that out of the way and I actually do the video and I tend to do it in one sitting, um, so 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I might do it in one take and then I will just load it onto my computer and use the editing software to take out all the ums and errs and the, the mistakes. Occasionally I'll fluff my lines or the next door neighbour will start hitting something with a hammer for no apparent reason. Neighbours, dogs barking crazy, you know. Um, uh, so you edit all those bits out. So probably half an hour's worth of editing. Um, sometimes it takes longer to upload them to YouTube than it did to, to make the video. So not particularly time heavy. Um, the hardest part is coming up with an idea and, and sort of developing it into a coherent 
conversation part piece. You know, you, you might just because you've come up with a, a, a really interesting question doesn't mean the answer, the the, the, the script you're going to write, it makes any sense, or indeed is in the right order. You know, and, and and you can go down rabbit holes with things. You can end up finding yourself arguing a completely different subject, um, and you have to remember to edit stuff out. Um, but I enjoy all that. That's why one of the reasons I did the blog. 13 years ago I like to write stuff no matter how painful it is sometimes to squeeze the words out of the head um, I quite enjoy that yeah so um, I, I will tend to sort of spend a bit of time editing out all the pauses and the, the noises from outside um, you know it's, it's, during the last summer one of my neighbours at the back was uh, building a building a conservatory and it was soaring, drilling and hammering for like weeks on end and you know, and they go, don't they know I'm trying to make a video in here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm an artist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, pretty much. Um, uh, and my next door neighbour is a, a pigeon fancier, so he's got like 200 pigeons in his back garden and he'll be out there racing and then he'll be out in the back garden calling them down off the roof, you know, with some fairly colourful language. <laughs> you, know, you want to know an obsessional hobby watch a pigeon fancier our hobby is not is our hobby is easy in terms of time commitment and obsession levels compared to being a pigeon fancier so um, there you go love he's a nice neighbor but uh, slightly crackers um and like i say he's always hitting something with a hammer god knows what he's doing in his shed but we're making noises and so it's easy to edit all that sort of stuff out and um so those sort of things are easy um for the for the the, the, like the opinion pieces and monologues as I like to refer to them um, uh, that when I do a battle report and particularly these 10 minute quick strike battle reports that's where it becomes really difficult because actually trying to edit a two hour war game that you videoed down to a 10 minute video is really difficult and thoroughly enjoyable but really takes a lot of effort to 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 squeeze that content down into a 10 minute video because you you've got to make you've got to be a proper filmmaker in effect you've got to have a have a really well-defined script and a, a you know you know where the story is going i mean obviously you don't know the outcome of the game that you've just played but particularly with these quick strike videos uh quick strike aars that little wars tv uh, uh, uh propose uh, that people do um they have a particular format you know you have to have a piece of history and then talk about the game and the setup and then you play the game and then you have a bit of analysis at the end um where you review the game that happened and so on so you have but you've got to do all that in 10 minutes and actually editing that is really hard and for those sort of videos it's easily 40 hours plus um, oh, probably more God. than that <laughs> really? um, and a large chunk of that is just writing a script that is really tight because in uh, unlike the, the the videos I do on a Sunday where I just have a list of bullet points and I tend to wing it um, in, on camera and then cut out the bits where I sort of fluff my lines with the, the quick strike after action reports you've got to have it word for word so I will have a really well I, I will build up a script and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then I'll record all of the, 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 the voiceovers and then I'll realise I've actually got 20 minutes of voiceovers so somehow I've got to remove a bit here. And it's, a, it's thoroughly enjoyable. I mean, I, mean, I have to say, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed the format because it's challenging me. And again, as I was saying earlier, it's learning new skills um, that are indeed transferable to my work, my, my day-to-day work. I've been offering to do some videos for, for the charity that I work for. Not because I'm 
a, a professional filmmaker, nothing of the sort, but I've learned some skills through my hobby over the last two years that are directly relatable to my job and I can put them to use. And, um, you know, I just think that's great. You're never too old to learn a new, a new skill as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, and, you know, I love all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, the, those quick strike reports, I've tried one myself and I, 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 I did throw the towel in uh, to be <laughs> honest, because, um, going into it uh, to make your first video of that sort where cam camera angles are really important aren't they what what dice throws do you show and uh what angle of the figure i know little wars tv did some really good instructional videos uh or tips really um but um i take my hat off to yourself and all the others that have done these quick strike reports because they are excellent but the thought of 40 hours of work for a 10 minute video and i, I can see why little wars have set the challenge of 10 minutes because it's an easily digestible battle report isn't it rather than a two-hour sprawling uh wobbly camera thing that catches every dice roll and and figure removal it, um, it forces you to be disciplined about what you're going to include and and i think it was greg in one of the training videos on little wars tv site he said your video needs to be exactly as long as it needs to be and not a second more and that, that was a really good phrase because it, it, you are you have to be disciplined you have to have a really tight focus because you're trying to tell the whole story the history, the preamble, how you got to that point, play the game and analysis. And it's all got to be inside of 10 minutes, including music and credits. And so you've got to be very tight. And I, I do find that it's, it's incredibly challenging, but really good fun. And, and I've enjoyed doing them, but I've enjoyed watching some of the amazing quick strike videos that other people have done. Um, I mean, um, Storm of Steel, some of the quick strike videos he's done are just, uh, they're mind blowing. They're absolutely brilliant. Um, so definitely, if you're out there, check out uh, his uh, YouTube channel because I'm really in awe of the stuff that he's done. Um, yeah, you know, something for me to aspire to because, uh, uh, you know, I say I'm not I'm not done learning new tricks yet. So um, I've got some quick strike videos that I want to do a little bit later in the year. Um, so I've already started working on some scripts and things for those because I know it's going to take that the writing the script is the hard part it takes a long time if I can get all that prepared when I actually get to play the games um, uh, it should be a little bit hopefully a little bit quicker um, and the other advantage of having a script written in advance before you play the game is you know what sort of scenes you want to reveal you know what sort of shots you need to take so I'll, on my notes, I'll have what is the scene, what shot do I want to get? And then I'll have the, the words, the, the bit that's going to be my voiceover. Um, but I'll also include in there a note about, right, what other photos do I want? Because I want to overlay a picture of this particular general or this particular location. So I need to go and find those uh, uh, pictures. And obviously they need to be... Um, uh, not copyright restricted and all that sort of thing and that can itself can be quite a challenge finding a picture that you can freely use um, so all of that preparation if you can get it done before you do the quick strike video um, filming the actual game is the easy part because you already know in advance what shots you want um, uh, so, so, yeah. so is the um, is the actual 
battle that you play out uh, choreographed, if you like, as opposed to being an actual game where the decision is in doubt? No, the ones that I've done, uh, the, the decision has been very much in doubt. You know, it's, it's still a game. I'm still rolling the dice and, and playing the game. But obviously I know generally what's going to happen. I mean, I mean, like, for instance, I did uh, uh, Trebia, so Hannibal's uh, first major battle in Italy, um, uh, where he completely wrong-footed the Romans, played them, brilliantly used the psychology of his enemy and the weather and the terrain and all you know complete mastery of the battlefield um so i knew what was going to happen i knew there was an ambush lying in wait for the romans for instance i didn't know what the outcome of that ambush would be when i started rolling dice but i knew it was coming so i knew what sort of scenes i wanted to what what things i wanted to video um uh, and i knew the timings of it um, but at the end of the day, it's a solo game. I'm going to roll those dice and the, the outcome will be what it's going to be. Um, uh, but you can, you can, you know that when the game starts, both sides are going to be advancing. So you know you're going to need a, show, a scene to show that. And you, know, and you know at a certain point that ambush is going to launch. So you need some preamble to that. You need a picture of the troops lying in ambush and when, when, the, when the dice rolls start for that. And you know that when you eventually get to that crucial end point and you're about to reach the point where the enemy is about to break, you've got to remember to film it. <laughs> um, so how, you know, although you can't, predict everything that's going to take place in a in a, a a proper game where you're rolling dice and it's in the fate of the the the, the outcome is in the, the the dice god's hands um you can predict what sort of scenes you're going to need to get to produce a film because ultimately you're trying to tell a story um so in the case of the trebia game i was obviously telling the story the historical story of what happened played the game and as it was it turned out very similar to history um uh, but it was a very close run thing in in some respects um but it made um juxtaposing the, the the game to the history was it produced all sorts of interesting analysis if you like of of how much control hannibal had over that particular battlefield you know he's one of my heroes if you like um, in in history um uh you know, and it still begs the question, which I'll no doubt come to at some point, is how did he manage to lose the war when he kept winning these battles and and with such mastery of the battlefield? And so, um, yeah, uh, so one of the things that I like about doing these quick strike videos is is the ability to sort of really focus in on a particular because I'm doing a historical game rather than something that I've um, uh, rather than a fictional encounter. I really get to analyse that piece of history in that particular battle in a, in a way that perhaps you might do if you was running a demo game. But I'm doing this just for my consumption. But then I'm turning it into a video and sharing what I've what I've experienced. So hopefully people find it interesting. I mean, incidentally, the, the, one of the other videos that I've done was um, Rourke's Drift. And I'd done a longer version of the battle report. I think it was about in, in three parts. It was an hour and a half long. You know, about the same length as most of battle reports are online, and there's nothing wrong with that because I watch them. I thoroughly enjoy those long format battle reports. But then I decided I would revisit that vi the video that I'd taken and see if I could reduce that down to ten minutes. And you know, amazingly, it, it is possible. Um, and and for me, I I thoroughly enjoyed the process of trying to go right well, out of that hour and a half 
minutes worth of film, what is essential to tell the story of Rourke's Drift? Um, uh, and in the process of picking that out, you really get to you really get to recognise the the turning points in that battle and you know those crucial moments that really tell the story. Um, you know much as we all love the film Zulu, um, not very historically accurate. <laughs> um, but to get to play the game, and, and again, this is another one where just by fate, the, the game played out fairly historically accurate. Um, and it was thoroughly exciting for that. And to be able to distill that, like I say, the original video was an hour and a half long, and to squeeze it down to 10 minutes, I think it produced a... It was a completely different way of looking at the same battle you know, and you could watch the longer version of the, the battle report I'd done, and then the ten-minute version. And you'd, you'd be forgiven for thinking that they were two different games because you're looking at them in a completely different way. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed doing that that process of, of of being disciplined about trying to tell that story in ten minutes. You come out of the process feeling like a proper filmmaker, um, and, and so it is. It's, it is an enjoy I find that very enjoyable. It's probably most people who listen to this and probably thinking I'm a, a proper masochist, which I am. I imagine, um, but I'm I'm enjoying it. And as I say, there's some amazing quick strike videos that other people have done. Um, you know, sometimes featuring props and and uniforms and just great storytelling. Um, and, and you can produce a really good film in 10 minutes and you're not going to get more out of that story by doing telling it in an hour and a half. Um, but I do enjoy the longer format. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not decrying longer version battle reports. You know, when people do a video of a game where every dice roll is involved and the game take, is a two-hour video, I enjoy that because if you're learning a new set of rules, it's a great way to watch a game and go, right, oh, I see what they understand what they're doing with the rules, and oh, I see that dice roll. So there's a place for both the short version and the long version of these um, types of battle reports on YouTube. And I think the thing before Little Wars TV introduced this concept of this quick strike after action report, there wasn't anything like that on on YouTube. You couldn't go on and find... It was very hard to find an, a, a battle report that was short like that. You know, a really punchy piece of storytelling. Um, all of the battle reports that you went online to find were all long. Hour, hour and a half, two hours, three hours sometimes. Um, and as I say, there's nothing wrong with that, but there was definitely a gap in the market, for want of a better phrase, for something shorter. Uh, absolutely, and uh, there is a place for both forms. Um, I will admit to watching, over a period of days, a 12-hour battle report of uh, Leipzig uh, using... Uh, it was actually a tabletop simulator, but it was essentially six mil figures on the table. Um, and I found it fascinating but that it's a hell of a commitment to sit and watch something of that length. Whereas uh, there's a, a real niche in the market here where um, YouTubers have been challenged to create these 10 minutes work, 10 minute works of art. And uh, you are solely responsible for me owning 11 uh, Rourke Strift <laughs> and <laughs> about 500 Zulus, which is just to my right. Uh, and they will get, they are on my list of uh, to do for this year. So uh, I'll definitely get around to that. I definitely think there is a need for shorter content within our hobby niche because it's very easy to do the longer videos. But actually, 
I, I, I mean, I don't know if this is true or not, but the, the YouTube algorithm seems to favour shorter videos. They've even introduced a new format called Shorts, which is similar in length to like TikTok videos. Not that I know what TikTok is, because obviously I'm 52 and I don't belong to that generation, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, but the point is, there is that, that sort of short content is easier to consume and I think is more likely to be watched by not just non-gamers, but people who are perhaps wavering and just what need that little, uh, and you know, and hopefully that will lead them on to watching something else that's a bit longer. And you know, who knows? You know, um, maybe someone watches one of those short after-action reports and feels inspired, and then cross fingers becomes a war gamer. You never know. Any, anything. It's a, a recruitment tool, I think, mm. absolutely for somebody who either stumbles across um, a quick strike report or is curious anyway as to what the hobby is then it's so much more easily digestible, isn't it, that 10 minutes? I think it's definitely more accessible to non-gamers or or those that perhaps haven't committed yet to to, to full-scale historical wargaming. You know, um, that short content, like I say, it's not a huge time commitment, and um, give it a try, and they might enjoy it, and if they do, they might decide to explore and find out a bit more. Um, the, both of the uh, quick strikes that you've talked about there have used six mil figures. I know you do game in 15 mil as well, uh, World War II, uh, but uh, both are six mil games that uh, you put out there. And uh, this is a six mil gaming podcast primarily. So what what's drawn you into six mil? Uh, primarily Ray from the Rejects. He said to me one day, he said, why don't you try six mil? So I blame him. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but no, I, 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 I say, I think I remember that, that one of those games that I saw at that first salute that I went to, I was just blown away by it. The sheer grand scale of it, uh, this huge American civil war game. I, I'm sure it was six mil. It might've been 10 mil, but the point is it was the smaller scales. Um, and, and, you know, all these years later, it, it's, it's a scale that perfectly fits my tiny little table in my room. Um, it, it's not expensive, um, compared to spending, buying the equivalent army in 28 mil. Um, and contrary to popular belief, it's easier to paint. Um, in fact, ironically, I've just finished painting some 15 millimeter cavalry, um, and I found it so much harder than painting the equivalent in six mil. Were these Berber by any chance? Yes, the the, the Berber cavalry that I've just done for the analog painting challenge. Um, they were, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed doing them, and I'm really chuffed with the way they came out. But they were so much harder than painting the equivalent six mil stuff. Um, so I do find, I actually personally think six mil is an easy scale to paint, and, and this is one of the things that I. I don't get not not annoyed, but I get a little bit frustrated at when people go, "Oh, how can you barely see it at that scale?" But that's the point. You don't have to be. It doesn't have to be the same perfect level of painting. It's the mass effect. Um, and for me, painting six mil is about method rather than precision. Um, you know, I use inks on my six mil figures, um, which covers up a multitude of sins, but produces really striking results at that three foot length when you, you know, you're normally looking at the figures out on the table. Um, and you can just have huge games uh, with six mils. Just, you know, Rourke's Drift, for instance, the game that I was talking about a minute ago. I mean, that's really, it's a huge battle with thousands of figures involved. And I'm pretty much got a one-to-one 
in figures on the table, not quite. I would often get myself one to four, but you couldn't get anywhere close to that in any larger scales. Um, and, and I know wargaming is always a compromise. You know, we compromise on grand scale and on figure ratios and stuff. But there is something to be said for getting close to that mass effect. And you can't do that in larger scales unless you happen to have a gigantic table uh, and an unlimited budget and extremely long arms to reach the centre of the table. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you're very uh, tall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I, like I say, I've got a relatively small table in my little room and I can have a really big battle in here uh, with six mil um and and indeed I've, we've played six mil with the rejects on their large table played some large uh, zulu war games uh with posties absolutely humongous collection of uh, Amer- uh, uh, uh anglo zulu war collection um in six mil and it's just um, it's just amazing to see a big game like that played out um uh, in fact um, one example would be my let's say i, I mentioned my two girls who much more into their role-playing games, but they've both been had their arms twisted and forced to war game of us. And my my youngest daughter, uh, aka the Padawan, um, uh, got dragged along to post his shed one day, and she got to play the Battle of Kambula. She played the British, and she beat me and another seasoned war gamer. I mean, me it wasn't such a surprise because, <laughs> as I think I've mentioned, I've got the tactical ability of a peanut. Yeah. But to to beat two seasoned war gamers in her first proper big table war game, six mil, it just looks spectacular. And uh, much as she wouldn't wouldn't like to admit it, I think she did enjoy herself. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, again, that's a real uh, yeah. parenting win that is <laughs> yeah yeah secretly i'm going yeah okay i've lost but yeah it's worth it <laughs> yeah, yeah well done well done um yeah it's interesting isn't it i've um built up quite a largest uh large american civil war collection over lockdown really uh and took it down to the club for the first time last week uh to play a multiplayer game of ultra freedom and i was quite I, uh, quite cautious about it because uh, most of the players there hadn't played six mil before um, and were used to actually 28 mil really uh, in the main. And I, I was wondering how it would get received, but I was pleasantly surprised that uh, they, they actually really enjoyed it, really bought into the concept of uh, what we are representing on the table. And in fact, one of the guys who owns the most ginormous collection of 28 mil napoleonics said if i'd known about these figures 30 years ago i'd have got my collection in, in six mil rather than 28 mil he'd, he'd be a damn sight richer now than he is. i mean it is it is the mass effect but also as you've alluded to there it's cheaper and you know you can buy an entire army for 50 quid 60 yeah. quid maybe yeah. um uh, it's not expensive to add to it doesn't take up a lot of space um, and particularly if you're a, a space-strapped gamer, as most of us are at one point or another, you know, it, 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 it's the perfect choice, I think. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love playing in other scales, and being part of the Regix means I get to play all sorts of scales. Posty's collection is huge, diverse, and, um, you know, so we always, always get to play other things, and I love playing 28mm, but I do enjoy a good 6mm game, and, and it, it, it's been been a highlight discovering six mil and getting into it and and to say i've done me punic war stuff um in six mil and there's always something to add yeah um uh, i have sort of half done a um uh, alexandrian 
period army. I've done the, the uh, Indians uh, for the Battle of Hardespes. I haven't got around to doing the Macedonians yet. I will build up my... I've got the models, but I haven't built up the courage to get on and paint them, which should probably right. be next year's painting challenge, probably. Yeah. Um, uh, but I mean, saying that, at the moment, I'm painting 15 mil. Um, so, you know, I, I quite enjoy all, all those scales. But there is something to be said for 6 mil just for that sheer mass effect and you know they can look spectacular um and then and you know people say oh the terrain's a bit boring because you know but it doesn't have to be it depends on what you make and there's so many good ideas and i mean the game was mentioned earlier about the internet it's just a great resource because you know you want an idea of how to make forests look more interesting at six mil go online somebody's got some great ideas and yeah. a lot of it you can make yourself don't have to buy it necessarily if you're into that sort of thing and it's not it's not i don't particularly find it difficult i certainly don't find painting six mil difficult um and i like having a having a punt at doing bits of terrain um sometimes i'll buy stuff but i often make my own terrain and there's loads i say there's loads of really good ideas um and if i ever manage to actually get up to joy of six i'm sure i'll be thoroughly inspired by the stuff i see on the tables there Yes, yeah, I'm sure you will, and it's something I'm really looking forward to. But um, I've said this before on the podcast, that the title of this show, God's Own Scale, is really tongue-in-cheek, because God's Own Scale is whatever you want it to be. It's a a phrase that's been thrown around for years in the hobby, um, and uh, it it really is tongue-in-cheek from something Peter Berry said many years ago uh, i have received a little bit of criticism over the years where people have taken it to heart that i think six mil is god's own scale and that it's the only scale you should play in absolutely not my collection uh spans every scale from two mil up to uh 28 mil but uh the the podcast is here for the, just for that voice i think really to highlight the scale but do you think there's any scale snobbery left in the hobby do you, do you ever get people turning the nose up at your zulus or your punic wars collection no i i haven't experienced that i always end up hearing the usual comments about oh how do you see them to paint with them um but as i say i actually find them easier to paint and you know if you can have a conversation with someone and say no actually it's a lot easier than you think um uh I haven't experienced scale snobbery, so to speak. And we've seen more six mil games at big demos, um, you know, at, at, at some of the shows. Um, the, the the game, that, uh, the Great Northern War game that uh, Per Broden put on at, um, Salute this last year in November was just absolutely amazing. Um, uh, and, you know, there, it's good to see six mil games represented at these shows because particularly at a big event like salute where people will go a lot of effort into putting a big demo game on you get to really see the scale in all its glory and you know and if there are any detractors there they've got a, they'll have to pick their jaw up off the floor when they've seen a game like that um because it was amazing um uh, and there is, I mean, I, I can't remember the game now, but there was somebody doing a First World War game. I think it was at Sel- uh, Selwig a few years ago, back when it was still at uh, Crystal Palace. And and again, amazing terrain and just the figures. And it's just, it's inspiring, you know. Um, in a, it, I mean, all, all, all of these demo games at shows are excellent. They're great um, 
uh, advocate sort of hobby. You know, they, they, they're designed obviously to inspire and to, to, to get people talking about a particular period and that. But I just think there's something about seeing a, six, a, a really well executed six mil game at a demo. Um, and if people can get over that fear of painting six mil, which I think is completely unfounded, um, I think they'd be pleasantly surprised at what they can do. Um, and, and I'll say how easy it is. Um, yeah. You know, it's easy on the pocket. I find it easy to paint. It's easy to store. It's easy to play. Yeah. What more can you ask from a scale? Yeah, that, that First World War game will have been Robert Dunlop. Uh, yes, that's it. That's talking one, about yeah. um, Great War Spearhead. He's, mm. uh, Selwig is one of his usual haunts to uh, put on one of his mega games. And, and as for the painting aspect, um, Dr. Mike Selway uh is is not too far from me actually uh, in Staffordshire, but he puts on painting clinics at the Joy of Six and the Partisan shows, or certainly has done at the Partisan shows, and he will get people to sit down and paint six mil figures uh, who've never painted a six mil before, six mil figure before, and within half an hour they'll walk away and they've got a unit of six mil figures that they've painted and they think oh actually yeah it's just it's really just technique isn't it it's about painting the unit not the man that's the old mantra um and just having that slightly different mindset about what you're going to do because you're not going to paint buttons or piping on on epaulets uh that's not the point of it it's also you've got to change your technique slightly um yeah. from yeah. from other scales you know i, I would I tend to undercoat in a brown rather than a black or a white that like I might do for other scales. Um, and then I don't worry too much about accuracy. Obviously, I'm trying to be accurate, but, you know, um, uh, the, these are six mil figures in the day. You know, you, you, I, I, I get the block painting in the right areas and then ink wash them afterwards. And I say that covers up a multitude of sins. And, but when you've, when you've uh, varnished them, um, I, I like everything in the matte varnish, and they just, and and then you stand back and you look at the unit, and they go, "Crikey, I can't believe I've done that." But it's it is a lot easier, um, and like you say, you're not picking out buttons and epaulets, and um, you're not even, for that matter, worried too much about what shade of blue the Prussians are wearing or whatever, um, because at that scale it doesn't matter. And it's that overall impression when you get a unit and and it consists of, um, I don't know. 40 figures on a base or whatever it might be depending on what system you're going to be using it looks like a unit you know um uh, it's just in, for me it's more impressive and and particularly it, i find it works really well if you're going to be doing on a small table particularly solo games i just find it a really fun scale to play um uh yeah well, obviously, I'm going to be a supporter because I paint a lot of six mil. But... <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason you're here, Lee. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like we're, we're, you know, I haven't got to convert you, have I? To, no, <laughs> the joys of six, the joy of six, as it were. Absolutely. Okay, so let's just before we round up, then um, I'd like to go on to one of the opinion pieces that you brought up in in one of your videos, and this is the one that really made me think long and hard and it was about hobby hoarding and how that um i forget how long ago you said now but a, a while ago now you sort of reassessed 
your approach to buying things and storing things and thinking just how much of this do I need? How much am I going to use? And uh, had, uh, you had a bit of a clear out and, and reduced that lead mounting down to a, a lead pimple by the sounds of it. Well, I tried. Um, yeah, no, I, I, like most people, I just had masses and masses of unpainted metal um, and then later on resin and plastic. And a lot of it was stuff. I mean, I, I had boxes and boxes of fantasy figures from like 25, 30 years ago when I first did a, a Warhammer Fantasy Battle. And and I was thinking, like, I'm never going to play that game system again. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've actually sold the painted part of the army. Why have I still got all these boxes of figures? And some of the figures I kept so that when at the time when I was doing that clear out, my, my kids were still fairly young. I, I kept some figures for them to paint paint on because I just thought, well, I, it doesn't matter if they, you know they can do as bad a job as they like, and hopefully they'll have fun and and learn something in the process. So that I used some of those figures for that. I donated some to some, gave some to friends, uh, donated a few, sold some stuff uh, on eBay. Didn't really make a lot of money out of it, to be honest. Um, some stuff I got rid of through bringing buyers, but basically what I was trying to do, I was trying to reduce that lead panting to the point where I was thinking, like, this is actually doable. What I've got left is stuff I really don't want to part with, and that I am genuinely going to get around to paint. And I try to only buy what I'm going to paint. Now, I mean, like most gamers, I fail miserably. I always end up overbuying, um, and I'm currently looking at a pile of um, uh, French foreign legionaries from blue moon the, uh, uh, the 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 number of figures i bought was probably twice what i actually needed um but that's just down to my basic lack of basic math skills um <clears throat> uh but now i mean i do try to keep only buy what i'm going to paint you know uh, uh, the, the exception is is i'm i might buy an individual figure or something that really catches my eye because i take part in the analog hobbies painting challenge there's always a need for some random figures for some of the the the, the, the bonus rounds or the challenge side challenges that take place. So I always, you know, I, I might find a come across a figure that I really like. I mean, I I bought some stuff at Salute, for instance, that I wasn't planning on getting um, um, from Bad Squiddo. Um, some of their female figures are just amazing, lovely looking figures. Um, you know, like uh, uh, wafts, for instance, and, and things like that, and, and and you know, female soldiers, and some of their their sculpts are just beautiful. Uh, and I just thought I've got to have that model, yeah. But I know I will eventually get round to painting that. But I'm not buying masses and masses of stuff. It's not like I'm going to uh, the Perry's and buying half a dozen boxes of stuff that are never going to get painted. If I'm going to do that, it's because I'm going to paint it. So again, at Salute, I went there with a big shopping list for some um, uh, French foreign legionaries and some some Arab Berbers and so on. Because um, uh, uh, I'm going to do I'm doing a project for. Uh, turn of the century, so between 1900 and 1903, southern Algeria. But I went there with a shopping list of exactly what I knew I wanted. As I say, I bought slightly too much, but I bought what I knew I was going to get painted, and I'm painting them now, so just a few months after getting them. I don't buy stuff, put it in the lead pile, and forget I've even got it, because um, I just haven't got room to do that. 
this this little games room of mine is only seven foot by eight foot and by the time I put all my storage space and cabinets and lights and everything else in here there's, there's definitely no room to swing a cat in here certainly there isn't any room for me to store boxes and boxes and stuff and when I was having a clear out let's say I, I can't remember how long ago it was now but when I was actually making this conscious effort to try and reduce my lead man and I was literally finding boxes of stuff in all sorts of places in the house and I just I just thought to myself this is obsessional behavior this is not healthy <laughs> I've got to have a, a clear out I can hardly look at my wife's cookery book collection that runs into probably thousands of books and I can't complain while I've got a hold going so I had to have a clear out um but yeah I say I try to only buy what I'm going to paint um uh, and that's not a bad rule of thumb, I think. Um, both to keep the, the... Well, you're not wasting money for a start, but also just, you know, if you most gamers haven't got room for all this stuff, so... Um. Yeah. It, it's, it takes discipline, doesn't it? Because um, most war games that I know of are like magpies that will take the, the new shiny as it comes out, whether it's Napoleonics from Warlord or the latest Perry or, or whatever it is. Um, but then, so you'll see them buy this thing, particularly something like Epic, where you're getting thousands of figures inside a box and it's great value. But then you never see it again. It you know, it goes as loft insulation. And I've been very much guilty of that over the years and overbought things and things. The, the, um, that acquisitive syndrome that we uh full foul of uh particularly at a show and you think yeah i'll do that and then you come home and you put it away and then suddenly it's three years have gone by and you've not looked at it again and you think why on earth i've sunk funds into that uh i've got more than enough stuff to cope with i've, I've got collections of figures i've not played with in years and yet i've gone and bought something else well the thing is is i i i don't want to obviously i don't want to waste money but i i, I you know I, i'm as tempted as anyone else when i see these things but i will only allow that temptation to take over if i know i'm gonna play with it and i'm quite happy to i mean i'm let's say this french foreign legionary stuff that i'm working on now it's a new project from any new period all new sets of history books and a period of history that i don't know a lot about and i'm enjoying doing that that initial reading and, and and as well as painting all the figures um but it doesn't mean to say i'm going to get rid of the punic war six mil punic war stuff i've got because i know that I, well in fact i have got some stuff to add to that in due course um i i think the only thing i would say is i i do regret selling some stuff that i got rid of when i was having the purge because i did as well as getting rid of a lot of um uh, the unpainted stuff i did actually clear out and, and sell off some of me second world war uh 15 mil stuff and then i've started buying it all again now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what, what what war gamer hasn't done that <laughs> yeah no i've done that several times actually <laughs> yeah you know, i mean I, my biggest regret actually is although i've never i don't think i, I cannot can't see myself ever playing a fantasy war game ever again i do regret selling the fantasy army that i had painted up for those first games of Warhammer that i played when i was back in university yeah. uh, well before then and, and up to university um not because they were brilliantly painted or anything but just because it was my first army um 
And and unlike any of my mates, I always turned up with a fully painted army. I couldn't bear to see unpainted metal on the table. But I would routinely get my backside handed to me by an unpainted orc army or something like that. <laughs> That's um, the worst, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I wish I'd kept them. In fact, actually, I found, uh, I think it was in the last painting change, I found uh, uh, one model unpainted and I found it in a box and I painted it up because it was like the last survivor of a lost army. Um, you know, a little bit of homage to, to that uh, that army from, I don't know, 30 years ago, perhaps 25, 30 years ago. Um, so, you know, always think twice before you sell uh, a collection. But at the same time, you've got to be ruthless, I think, sometimes because it, it is easy to succumb to temptation. And I, I think one of the things as well that's got me thinking about that in more recent years is, um, you know, hearing stories of, these these venerable old gamers that have passed away and they've got massive collections of beautifully painted figures and it's somebody else's job to dispose of that collection and and, and uh, I, I i've made sure that i've got a detailed instructions in case i croak tomorrow so that i know that it's going to go to who i want it to go to um because the last thing I'd, I mean, not my wife would bin it all, but I would hate to think that she'd left with this big conundrum of what to do with stuff. Um, and part of that is making sure you haven't got a gigantic lead pole that's got its own gravitational field um, to start with, you know, because that that's bad enough. But you know, certainly with the, when it comes to the painted figures, I I have a very detailed list of who's having what. Um, you know, should the worst happen, I know I won't be around to see it go, but just the very thought of it not going to a good home breaks my heart. So I made sure that I've uh, laid all that out in detail so that it's less stress for her should the time come. She's bound to outlive me. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a really good point because I'm 51, so we're practically the same age. Yeah. Um, and I, I've got figures that I've had for years, painted figures that I've had for years and not played with. I've got unpainted figures uh, that, I think to myself, will I ever get this figure painted or this collection mm. painted? And I've got my current stock of figures and uh, painted armies that I, I'm using now. And I'm thinking, just how much of this do I need? How much will I ever get round to? And how much uh, will I be leaving my wife? Uh, when my And hopefully, you know, it could be 10, 20, 30 years down the road, but... Um, if if the worst was to happen tomorrow, uh, I'd be in a real state, or she'd be in a real state, <laughs> because uh, she wouldn't have a clue what to do with it. So I think having a, a list of instructions is a great start. Um, and I, I've been in the position also where I've had by uh, seller's regret, uh, where as soon as I've packaged something off onto eBay, I thought, oh, I wish I hadn't sold it now. I really like those figures, but. Um, uh, I think that's part of the mental battle that some of us can have sometimes where the law of selling something and getting some new hobby funds uh, is very tempting because you might want to put it into a new project. Uh, but equally, inevitably, at some point down the line, whether it's as soon as you've posted it or six months or 12 months down the line, something catches your eye. I sold a 15 mil Samurai collection, for instance, uh, three or four years ago. Uh, and I've regretted it ever since. But realistically, if I'd still got them, how much would I have been using them? And the, the question is, uh, is is out there to be asked, uh, answered as to say, well, probably not very much. It's just that 
that seller's regret, I think. Well, I mean, I think for me, the classic example would be I, I had a lot of Second World War stuff painted up for Flames of War. And I didn't like the, the, the new, when the, I think it was third edition came out, didn't like it. I was already going off the set of rules. And then they sat around in my storage boxes for a couple of years, more than that probably. And in the end, I decided to try and sell some stuff. So I sold some on eBay, I sold some to some friends. Um, and I got rid of most of the collection. And then a couple of years ago, I discovered Chain of Command. And I thought, and I found a few figures that had missed that cold I hadn't sold and I rebased them for using in Chain of Command and I'm kicking myself because I had a really lovely painted uh, American 101st Airborne Infantry Platoon um, that I could have rebased and used for Chain of Command but of course I'd sold it and so you, know, you never know what rule sets are going to come up um, uh, but at the same time I, you know I, I am very tight for space in here um, you know, every inch is full of stuff, and in fact, I've started to spread out into the rest of the house again, which is something I said wouldn't happen when I got a new room. So I'm waiting for daughter number two to move out so I can upgrade to a bigger room. <laughs> <laughs> it comes to something, doesn't it, when yeah. uh, you're desperate for the kids to go. <laughs> I've got a few years yet until mine goes, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's a, it's a real conundrum. I, I, I found that that chat that you had um, on one of your videos, very thought, well, they're all thought provoking, but that one particularly hit home and has made me reassess uh, just where I am and, and what I'm going to do. So this year, I think will be a year of contemplation of how to get to that point where my lead mounting becomes hopefully a mound, if not a pimple <laughs> by the end of it. And uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll perhaps have a chat again this time next year and see where I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll hold you to it, yeah. So yeah, you've got rid yeah. of stuff. Have you spent and got rid of anything? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but I've added to it. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, this is the issue, isn't it? But, um, mate, it's been great to chat to you. Uh, it's been fascinating to hear uh, the background and how you got into the blogging and YouTubing and your thoughts on gaming in general. Uh, there's two questions, however, that I'm going to ask uh, before uh, we sign off. Uh, the first is a relatively easy one, and that I'm going to ask you to commit to coming back on the show at some point in the future, possibly next year, <laughs> to <laughs> check on my com hobby commitment. <laughs> I'd love to. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. It's been really good fun. Good, good, uh, and for me too. And uh, the second one is uh, a book recommendation to put on uh, to the shelves of the God's Own Scale Virtual Library. Um, I will just give a shout out to uh, Charles Rowntree uh, once again. I, I did so last episode, but uh, Charles has very kindly gone through back through all of the episodes of God's Own Scale and collated all of the, the books uh, that have been recommended and given links to the episode and to Amazon where they exist. Uh, and that can be found on the God's Own Scale Facebook page uh, pinned to the top. Uh, and we're about to have, hopefully, at least one more entry into that uh, God's Own Scale library. Well, I've actually got two. Um, uh, Excellent. Never, never do things by halves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so the first one is what I'm reading at the moment. Um, I've got this for Christmas. Um, and it's Our Friends Beneath the Sands, Foreign Legion in France's Colonial Conquests, 1870 to 1935, by Martin Windrow. Um just a beautiful writer. Um, 
very evocative these grand vistas you read in his words and you can see the sweep of north africa it's just beautiful beautifully written um and the the, the politics and the the intrigues if you like of that particular the period that i'm particularly interested in in sort of morocco and algeria um it, it's just got a way of making what sounds like a very complicated uh, political situation um very understandable but also very cinematic when you're reading his words it's like watching a david lean movie um so very very good um thoroughly enjoying that um obviously i'm focusing on the bits that relate to the period and the area that i'm interested in but the whole book is is just so nicely written thoroughly well, my, my knowledge of that era uh really is summed up by carry on camel <laughs> follow that camel the carry on film <laughs> so well, that, I'll, I'll certainly look that one out yeah as to be said i am sort of being driven by uh, my uh, you know love these great old black and white movies and bojest and all that and of course the reality is completely different but you know who cares i'm i'm enjoying the the, the period anyway and i'll be i'll be imagining bojest while i'm playing with my uh, french foreign legion so that's that's my first um recommendation but the main one um i'm not sure whether people will be able to get hold of this but it's called um Bass raid the long-range desert group's most daring exploit in world war ii by brendan o'carroll and it's brendan o'carroll the author not the comedian um uh, from new zealand and he's interviewed it's basically the one raid that the lrdg took part in um that it was part of a wider raid combined with um, the SAS and the SBS uh, at various locations behind enemy lines. But this particular raid on, on Bars or Barche, um, uh, an Italian airfield hundreds of miles behind the enemy lines, was an almost, it was an exclusively LRDG uh, attack. And the book is just so well researched. He'd spoken to all of the surviving members, most of whom were New Zealanders. Um, and it's just the whole book reads like a boy's own adventure i mean it's just it's unbelievable you know the, the even just the journey across the desert to reach the target was an adventure in itself um and then the raid which was just so daring uh, and he's just again the way it's written it's just so evocative and there's loads of pictures um somebody um probably against orders took a camera with them so there's pictures of the men uh you know from the long, the month, the weeks long uh, uh, journey to the destination, uh, pictures of the, the, some of the, the, the men in their vehicles, um, uh, and there's some really nice maps. So it's a really useful uh, book from the point of view of recreating that particular raid. And then, of course, you've got the actual raid itself, which is just sort of like uh, the audacity of it is just mind blowing. Uh, this small group of men in their vehicles was going to basically drive through the center of an Italian-held town, past all the Italian guards and onto the airfield, shoot up everything in sight and then escape into the desert in the night. And the raid was an absolute blinding success. Um, the, the, the LRDG suffered quite seriously afterwards because the Italians, not all of the Italian planes were destroyed and the Italians were able to put a spotter plane up and track down the LRDG and a lot of the vehicles got destroyed. But even then the story doesn't end because some of the men were had to walk across the desert hundreds of miles. Two men ended up hiding out with some of the local Arab tribes and dodging uh, uh, search parties looking for them. And, and others who were uh, ended up in prison 
uh, we were captured as prisoners of war, ended up escaping and returning to their their units. And it's just it's a proper boys' own adventure, and it's just just very very well written. So uh, if you can get hold of a copy of it, um, I think that the uh, publishers are I think it's pronounced Nagayo Press. Um, published in 2005 if you can get it it's a, a very very good book and I, I did a game based almost entirely on the contents of this book for this one raid um, another one of those quick strike videos that I did earlier in uh, last year um, but it's just such a it was a brilliant book for a particular I, I decided to play that game and paint the models for that game and then I discovered the book and I had to completely change everything because the book was just so brilliantly written um, so there you go, my uh, rather gushing recommendation there, Boss Raid by Brendan O'Carroll. Well, I was if you hadn't have mentioned it, I was just about to say that uh, after action report that you did was absolutely outstanding. Um, and uh, I, f- I forgot to mention it earlier, but goodness me, that what a story that was of those men uh, riding through the desert for however long and then uh as you say riding through that town and then onto the airfield and taking out all those planes that was a, a really fantastic report uh lee that was that was probably one of my favorites actually it uh, was one of my favorites to play um we played we ran it at posters regis we did it as a demo game at, um broadside i can't remember it was a few years ago and, and i decided to revisit and play it again myself because i just enjoyed it so much and as I say, it's just a, a proper ripping yarn, boys' own adventure type thing. And when you think that these guys had travelled hundreds of miles to reach their destination, and then we're going to attack this, you know, the, not really knowing what it, Italians were going to be there, and they're attacking in unarmoured trucks. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just bonkers, incredible. Isn't it? Yeah, it and is. it's you know, young guys as well, weren't they? You know, you aren't talking about well, just incredible. Just incredible. And, and ten, tens a... of thousands of rounds fired and nobody killed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't like to have been in amongst it, would you, though? No, <laughs> so. no. I, I didn't hear anything, but they sure scared the Italians, that's for yeah, sure. And of yeah. course, they took out loads of aircraft. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, yeah. they pretty much achieved their objective um, and basically took out this entire airfield and all the planes on it. Um so it must have been a sight to behold. And I say the fact that the, the the book includes interviews with all the most of the survivors, um, you know, back in, when the book was written in two thousand and five. So they interviewed most of those people, and they had war diaries, but they also had photographs from taken by people that were there. Um, just fascinating, a really, really good read. Um, and it, and I don't often. I have to admit, I'm a bad reader. I don't often pick up a book and read it cover to cover. But I remember when I bought that particular book, I literally sat and read the whole thing in one sitting. It was just brilliant. Well, both books will take pride of place on the God's Own Scale, on the shelves of the God's Own Scale Virtual Library. So thanks very much for that, Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'm, I'm glad I persuaded you to come on and. Have a chat with us. Uh, I wish you all the success in the world with the uh, blogging and, and more particularly the uh, the YouTubing and uh, your hobby in general. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, always good to talk to someone and uh, rave about this wonderful mad hobby of ours. Let's go.
episode what a great chat that was and a peek behind the curtains of his own hobby life and his youtube channel and blogging experiences having been down with covid plus using a much larger brush than normal to paint both some 28 mil bolt action u.s infantry and a spare bedroom my output for the war of independence project has slowed down a touch however I am in a most unusual position where, by the end of today, the 28th of January, I will have painted all the figures I own for the War of Independence project. I can't remember ever having done this before, but rest assured, more are on order. But for now, the War of Independence is done and I can fight Guildford Courthouse. So hopefully more of that at some point in the very near future. I have a couple of shows on the horizon. Vapnartak uh, in York on the 6th of February, which is one of the larger one-day shows, and Hammerhead on the 5th of March, which takes place at the Newark Showground, the same location as Partizan. Um, and to be honest, it's fairly indistinguishable from Partizan, other than the fact that all of the games there are participation games. I do believe that our very own Dan Hodgson is putting on a game at that show and i also think peter berry is taking uh, the original pony wars with him to uh, hammerhead so check out the various websites and social medias for details on that both shows will see plenty of opportunity for impulse purchases having planned the year's painting out uh, at the end of last year i've already breached this and ordered my first pony war figures it was inevitable that I would buy them. I have the rules, so it's a no-brainer, really. I just wasn't planning on doing it this soon in the year, and I will point the finger of blame once again at uh, Mr. Bleasdale and uh, Dan uh, for their own wonderful efforts, and check out their various social media and uh, blogging efforts to see how they're getting on with their own Pony Wars collections. Finally, thanks to everyone for your continued support, all the listeners, all the Patreons who help me to keep the lights on at God's Own Scale Towers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash God's Own Scale. And if you wish to contact me regarding this episode or any other, you can do so at God's Own Scale at gmail.com or at God's Own Scale on Twitter. The Facebook group, uh, God's Own Scale has seen a deluge of new members, so please check that, that out and join the conversation. Okay, that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, play nice, and as ever, keep talking about six. Brother Bertie went away to do his business the other day. With the smile on his lips and his left hand and fixed upon his shoulder, right and gay. As the train moved out, he said, Remember me to all the birds. Then he wagged his paw and went away to war, shouting out these pathetic words. Goodbye, goodbye.
Oh, 